to the Horse Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Bruce Carter. In this podcast, you will hear intriguing and thoughtful interviews, as well as actionable tips, strategies that can be implemented either in your institution, health and wellness, and education. Our podcast is not about name recognition or being famous. Everyone has untapped potential. In today's fast-changing landscape demands nation leaders who can quickly adapt, build trust, and deliver value. Through people and technology, we're listening and providing insights, tough political and business challenges, including talent, transformation, geopolitical conflicts, pandemics, and social injustice. In this podcast series, Voices of Marks will offer insights to help you tackle today's challenges and prepare for tomorrow. Through social change, we will be the voice of democracy, American promise, global mission. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let's jump to your daily dose of Voice of Democracy. Today's highlight, I will focus on U.S. child labor, a persistent issue in the land of opportunity. First, let me open by stating, it appears the failed U.S. immigration policy with shortage of immigrants are being replaced by child labor. U.S. Congress has failed in passing comprehensive immigration policy. The U.S. as a whole, and especially U.S. governors, need to be mindful of human rights violations. The UN and the US have policies against human rights violation in which we uphold China, Russia, and other actors to human rights standards. I urge everyone who's listening to this podcast for the upcoming presidential election to make this an issue with your local election in your local election town hall meetings and write to your House of Representatives or to your senator. So let's get started. An aged Native American chief was visiting New York for the first time in 1906. He was curious about the city, and the city was curious about him. A magazine reporter asked the chief what most surprised him in his travels around town. He replied, little children working. Child labor might have shocked that outsider, but it was all too commonplace then across the urban industrial America and on farms where it had been customary for centuries. In more recent times, however, it's become a far rare sight. Law and customs, most of us assume, drove it to near extension. And our reaction to seeing it reappear might resemble that chief's shock disbelief. The United States has long been a destination for immigration seeking a better life, but its immigration policies have often sparked controversial and debates. In recent years, one of the most concerning aspects of U.S. immigration policy has been its impact on children. The treatment of immigrant children at the U.S. border, if some of us can recall, and within the country has raised questions about the nation's moral compass and the long-term consequences of these policies. One of the most troubling incidents in recent U.S. immigration history was the separation of families at the border. If you recall, in 2018, the zero-tolerance policy under the Trump administration led to the separation of thousands of children from their parents. This policy aimed to prosecute all illegal border crossings, which meant that even parents seeking asylum were drained and their children were taken away. The consequences of these policies were there. Children were left 
traumatized, often not knowing when or if they will be reuniting with their families. The images of children held in detention facilities, sometimes in overcrowded and unsanitary conditions, shocked the world. While this policy was eventually rescinded, it left a lasting scars on many families and raised questions about the U.S. government's treatment on vulnerable children. So, does this mean we better get used to it? Since child labor is making a comeback with a vengeance, a striking number of lawmakers are undertaking concerted efforts to weaken our repeal statutes that have long prevented, or at least seriously inhibited, the possibility of exploiting children. Take a breath and consider this. The number of kids at work in the United States increased by 37% between 2015 and 2022. During the last two years, 14 states have either introduced or enacted legislation rolling back regulations that govern the number of hours children can be employed, lowered the restrictions on dangerous work, and legalizing sub-minimum wages for use. The state of Iowa now allows those as young as 14 to work in industrial laundries. At age 16, they can take jobs in roofings, construction, excavation, and demolition, and can operate power-driven machinery. 14 years old can now even work night shifts, and once they hit 15, can join assembly lines. All of this was, of course, prohibited not so long ago. Legislators, legislators offer factitious justifications for such intrusions into long-settled practices. Working, they tell us, will get kids off their computers or video games or away from the TV. Or it will strip the government of power to dictate what children can and can't do, leaving parents in control. A claim already transformed into fantasy by efforts to strip away protective legislation and permit 14-year-old kids to work without formal parental permissions. In 2014, the Coyote Institute, a right-wing think tank, published a case against children labor prohibitions, arguing that laws stifle opportunity for poor and especially black children. The Foundation of Government Accountability, a think tank funded by a range of wealthy conservative donors, including the DeVos family. Some of you may know that name by the last administration, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, her family, has spearheaded efforts to weaken child labor laws in America for prosperity. The billionaire Koch Brothers Foundation has joined in. Now, there are... Now, nor are these assaults confined to red states like Iowa or South Carolina, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, and New Hampshire, as well as Georgia and Ohio, have been targets too. Even New Jersey passed a law in the pandemic years temporarily raising the permissible work hours for 16 to 18-year-olds. The blunt truth of the matter is that child labor pays and is fast becoming remarkable, ubiquitous. It is an open secret that fast food chains have employed underage kids for years and simply treat the occasional fines or doing so as part of the cost of doing business. Children as young as 10 have been toiling away in such pit stops in Kentucky and, and older ones working beyond the 
hourly limits prescribed by law. Roofers in Florida and Tennessee can now be as young as 12. Climate change disasters has also been a known fact for child labor and rebuilding those towns and cities been hit by natural disaster due to climate change. Recently, the Labor Department found more than 100 children between the ages of 13 and 17 working in meatpacking plants and slaughterhouses in Minnesota and Nebraska. And those were anything but fly-by-night operations. You may have read about this somewhere. Companies like Tyson Foods and Packer Sanitation Services, owned by Blackstone, the world's largest asset management firm, were also on the list. At this point, virtually the entire economy is remarkable open to child labor, garment factories and auto parts manufacturers supplying food and people in places like supplying Ford and General Motors employ immigrants, kids, some for 12 hours a day. Many are compelled to drop out of school just to keep up in a similar fashion. Hyundai and Kia supply chains depend on children working in Alabama. As the New York Times once reported last February, helping, helping breaking the story of the new child labor market, underage kids, especially migrants, are working in cereal packing plants and food processing factories in Vermont, illegals, because they are too young to work, operate milking machines. Some children help make J. Crew shirts in Los Angeles, bake rolls for Walmart, or work producing Fruit of Balloons socks. Danger lurks, America. America is a notoriously unsafe place to work, and the accident rate for child labor is especially high, including a chilling inventory of sh shattered spines, amputations, poisons, and disfiguring burns. A journalist by the name of Hannah Dreyer has called it a new economy of exploitation, especially when it comes to migrant children. A Grand Rapids, Michigan, School teacher observing the same predicament remarked, you are taking children from another country and putting them almost in industrial servitude. Child labor has deep historical roots in the United States. During the 19th and earlier 20th centuries, children as young as five or six years old were commonly employed in factories. Mines and other hazardous workplaces, the consequences were devastating as young lives were put at risk and their education and development were stunted. The Progressive Era brought about significant changes in labor laws and regulations, culminating in the Fair Labor Standard Act of 1938. This landmark legislation establishing minimum working age and the maximum working hours for minors thus laying the foundation for the protection of children in the workforce. Today, we may be as stunned by this deplorable spectacle as that chief was at the turn of the 20th century. Our ancestors, however, would not have been. For them, child labor was taken for granted. Hard work, moreover, had long been considered by those in the British upper classes who didn't have to do so as a spiritual tonic that would rein in the unruly impulses of the lower orders. An Elizabethan law of 1575 provided public money to employ children as prophylactic against 
vagabonds, and paupers. By the 18th century, the philosopher John Locke, then a celebrated champion of liberty, was arguing that three-year-olds should be included in the labor forces. Daniel D. Ford, author of Robinson Crusoe, was happy that children after four or five years of age could ever one earns their own bread. Later, Jeremiah Betham, the father of utilitarianism, would opt for four, since otherwise society would suffer the loss of precious years in which nothing is done. Nothing for industry, nothing for improvement, moral or intellectual. American founding fathers, Alexandra Hamilton's 1791 report of manufacturing noted that children who would otherwise be idle could instead become a source of cheap labor, and such claims that working at an early age warded off the social dangers of idleness and degeneracy remained a fixture of elite ideology well into the modern era. Indeed, it eventually remains so today. When industrialization began in earnest during the first half of the 19th century, observers noted that work in new factories, especially textile mills, was better done by little girls of 6 to 12 years old. By 1820, children accounted for 40% of the mill workers in three New England states. In that same year, children under 15 made up 23% of the manufacturing labor force, as much as 50% of the production of cotton textile. And such numbers would only soar after the Civil War. In fact, children of ex-slaves were effectively re-enslaved through onerous apprenticeships arrangements. Meanwhile, in New York City and other urban centers, Italian padrones expedited the exploitation of immigrant kids while treating them brutally. Even then, Brahmin-minded, anti-immigrant New York Times took offense. The world has given up stealing men from the African coast on to kidnap children from Italy. Between 1890 and 1910, 18% of all children between the ages of 10 and 15, about 2 million young people worked, often 12 hours a day, 6 days a week. Their job covered the waterfront, all too literal as under the supervision of padrones. Thousands of children sucked oysters and picked shrimp. Kids were also street messengers and newsies. They worked in offices and factories, banks and brothels. They were breakers and trappers in poorly ventilated coal mines, particularly dangerous and unhealthy jobs. In 1900, out of 100,000 workers in textile mills in the South, 20,000 were earning the age of 12. City orphans were also shipped off to labor in the glass roofs of the Midwest. Thousands of children stayed home and helped their families turn out clothing for sweatshops manufacturers. Others packed flowers in ill-ventilated tenants. One seven-year-old explained that, I like school better than home. I don't like home. There's too many flowers. And, I, and down on the farm, the situation was no less grim. As children as young as three worked, hauling berries. Clearly, well into the 20th century, industrial capitalism depended on the exploitation of children who were cheaper to employ, less able to resist. And until the advent of more sophisticated technologies, 
well-suited to deal with relative simple machinery then in place. Moreover, the authority exercised by the boss was in keeping with the era patriarch assumptions, whether in family or even in the largest of the overwhelming family-owned new industrial, industrial firms of the time like Andrew Carnegie, steelworkers, and such family capitalism gave birth to the perverse elements of boss underlining that transformed children into miniature wage laborers. Meanwhile, working class families were also severely exploited that they desperately needed the income of their children. As a result, in Philadelphia around the turn of the century, the labor of children accounted for between 28% and 33% of the household income of native-born two-parent families. For Irish and German immigrants, the figures were 46% and 35%, respectively. Not surprisingly, then working-class parents often opposed proposals for child labor laws. As noted by Karl Marx, the work was no longer able to support himself, so now he sells his wife and child. He becomes a slave dealer. Nonetheless, resistance began to mount. The socialist and muckranker photographer Louis Hine scandalized the country with heart-trenching pictures of kids slaving away in factories and down in the pits of mines. He got into such places by pretending to be a Bible salesman. Mother Jones, the militant defender of labor organizing, led a children's crusade in 1903 on behalf of 46,000 striking textile workers in Philadelphia. 200 children work delegates showed up at the President Teddy Roosevelt's Oyster Bay, Long Island, resident to protest, but the President simply passed the buck, claiming that child labor was a state matter, not a federal one. Here and there, kids tried running away. In response, owners began surrounding their factories with barbed wire or made the children work at night. Their fear of the dark might keep them from fleeing. Some of the 146 women who died in the infamous Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire in 1911, the Manhattan's Greenwich Village, the owners of that garment factory had locked their doors, forcing and trapped workers to leap to their deaths from the upper floor windows. Whereas young as 15, that tragedy only added to a growing fury over child labor. A National Child Labor Committee was formed in 1904. For years, it lobbied states to outlaw or at least rein in the use of child labor. Victories, however, were often distantly perfect as laws enacted were invariable weak, included dozen exemptions, and poorly enforced. Finally, in 1916, a federal law was passed that outlawed child labor everywhere. In 1918, however, the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. In fact, only in the 1930s, after the Great Depression hit, the condition began improving, given its e economic devastation. You might assume that cheap labor would have been at a premium. However, with jobs so scarce, adults, males especially, took precedent and began doing work once regulated to children. In those same years, industrial work began incorporating even more complex machinery and proved too difficult for young kids. Meanwhile, the age of composure and schooling was steadily rising, limiting yet more the available pool of child laborers. Most importantly of all, 
the tenure of the times changed. The insurgent labor movement of the 1930s loathed the very idea of child labor. Unionized plants and whole industrials were no-go zone for capitalists looking to exploit children. And in 1938, with the support of organized labor, President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal administration finally passed the Fair Labor Standards Act that, at least in theory, put an end to child labor, although it exempted the agriculture sector in which such a workforce remained commonplace. Moreover, Roosevelt's New Deal transformed the national Zagadites, a sense of economic and a newfound respect for the working class, and a bottomless suspicions of the corporate caste made child labor seem particularly repulsive. In addition, the New Deal ushered in a long era of prosperity, including rising standards of living for millions of working people who no longer needed the labor for children to make ends meet. It's all the more astonishing that to discover that a plague once thought vanished lives again. American capitalism is a global system. Its network extends virtually everywhere. Today, there are an estimate of 152 million children at work worldwide. Not all of them, of course, are employed directly or even indirectly by the U.S. firms. But they should certainly be a reminder of how deeply retrogressive Capitalism has once again become both here at home and elsewhere across the planet. Boats about the power of wealth in American economy are part of our belief system and elite rhetoric. However, life expectancy in the United States is a basic measure of social retrogression. Has been relentless, declining for years. Healthcare is not only affordable, unaffordable for millions. Its quality has become second rate at best if you don't belong to the top 1%. In a similar fashion, the country infrastructure has long been in decline, thanks to both its age and decades of neglect. Think of the United States then as a developed country now in throes of undevelopment and in that context, the return of child labor is deeply symptomatic. Even before the Great Recession that followed the financial implosion of 2008, standards of living had been falling, especially for many working people laid low by decades of long tsunami of deindustrialization. The recession, which officially lasted until 2011, only further exacerbated the situation. It put added pressure on labor costs, while work became increasingly precarious, ever more stripped of benefits and non-unionized. Given the circumstances, why not turn to yet another source of cheap labor? Children, right? The most vulnerable among them come from abroad, migrants from the global south, escaping failing economies, often traceable to American economic exploitation and domination. If this country is now experiencing a border crisis, it, it, and it is in origins lie on the side of the border, the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 to 2022 created a brief labor shortage, which became a pretext for putting kids back to work, even in the return of child labor actually predated the disease. Consider such child workers in the 21st century as a distinct sign of social pathology. United States may still bully parts of the world by endlessly showing off its military might 
at home, however it is sick. Here are my final thoughts. While child labor in the United States has significantly decreased over years, it remains a pressing concern. The protection of children in the workforce is a more imperative and the nation must continue to evolve its laws, regulation, and enforcement mechanisms to ensure that all children are safe, have access to education, and are given opportunity to thrive. Only through collective efforts can we fully address the issue of child labor and build a brighter future for younger members of our society. If you want to know how you can report any abuse of child labor, please contact your local state labor office. Just, just go to your, your search engines um, and type in state labor office, whatever state you may be in. All discussion with them, including complaints, are free and confidential. Your name and the nature of the complaint will not be disclosed. This is serious, and I ask everyone, please pay attention to this, and please ensure that you come this upcoming election, you echo your voice. And as we get ready to close, I'd like to thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the People First Consulting, Voice of Democracy. For more information about People First Consulting, Voice of Democracy, please visit our website at www.pfcworks.com. American Promise, Global Mission. Thank you for tuning in and listening today. Until next time, please be safe, stay informed, and live well.